0: When I was traveling a couple weeks ago in, in uh, Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and uh, little, I want to share some little tidbits from my trip. Things that stood out to me. Um, three things really standing out to me. One was uh, had to do with worship, and we got to go to these two churches in Croatia, and I just the worship there was just the same as here. It was so familiar. And it was so home. Little, you know, Smaller church, smaller room, non-traditional architecture, but exactly the same worship. Even the flow of their worship. Opening song is some of the late people were coming through the door. Uh, and, then, and then there's a greeting and, and uh, more singing. And there was a time of prayer, a scripture reading, a sermon, a closing song, and then a benediction, everybody drinks coffee. It was so familiar. Even all the, most all the songs, I knew the songs, and they were singing in different language. We sang in English, and they sang in their language, and it was so uh, beautiful and familiar, and just wherever you go, people are worshiping Jesus, and it just feels like home. Now, obviously, there's other parts of the world where uh, the musical expressions would be different, and sort of the forms might be a little different, but in Europe, because we share so much of our musical stylings, or, you know, we just share that was so easy and so home. And it's just like just like being with you folks here. So I just loved that um, all around the world people are worshiping Jesus this morning and we're just joining in uh, in very similar ways. The second thing that really stood out to me was about discipleship. And I mentioned this a little bit last week, but um, we were at this one, we were on this uh, water tower in the city of Vukovar, Croatia. It became sort of a symbol of their resiliency. There was a a major battle that happened there. A pretty small town, but a pretty significant battle. And there was Yugoslav tanks from one side and boats from the other side bombing the city. And, and almost just for fun, they were kind of bombing out this water tower because it was very central, invisible in the city. And and uh, they would try to shoot the Croatian flag off the top of this water tower. And they, they did. The very next day, somebody would have climbed up and put a new flag on top. And then every then they'd start shooting at it again. They'd shoot the flag down, and, the, and then... It, they kept planting a flag on top of this water tower it became just a beautiful picture of their resiliency and and a, really a memorial to some real atrocities that happened in that place and again we were t- we were they've rebuilt the inside of this water tower as a sort of a museum and we were up there with a pastor and so you know how do you disciple people who have been through this stuff and he said he said we just teach them to put Jesus first and it's funny cuz we travel these places and I'm there to learn and it's like I'm going to go to this place and magically come back with this answer that's different and we're going to try it here and the answer is put Jesus first. That was the answer I left with. That's the answer I come back with and that's what we're going to do here and that's what God's people are going to do everywhere. We put Christ first. So whether you've been through atrocities or you're experiencing joys and successes or failures of life or whatever, grief or whatever you experience, when you put Christ first, everything else is going to flow from that place for healing and life, and life abundant, eternal, put Jesus first. Uh, the third thing was about evangelism, about reaching, um, how do you reach new people? One of the real fruitful ministries that we ran into when we were in uh, Czech Republic was campus ministry. And we believe very much in campus ministry, ministry to college students. Uh, that can be a very pivotal time of faith formation. And so we were talking to this guy, he's a campus minister in Czech Republic, and he said, you know, of all the things that we do, and they do different outreaches and events and parties and inviting and all this stuff. He said the most successful uh, outreach that we do is when groups get together and study the Bible together. Like Really? <laughs> There's another magical answer for you. When He said when people get together and they look at the Bible as God's word and... and it, is a a spiritual text, and they start to find God in there, and they find themselves in God's word, and it it changes lives. And those are the groups that have been most focused, of all the other things that we've tried to do, it's groups that really focus on the Bible, that are the ones that have grown and have been successful and have uh, invited new people and people coming to faith. And I thought, wow, you know, there you go. You travel the world, put Jesus first, keep his word central. I think one of the hallmarks of our church is that God's word is central to what we do as we worship. We spend a lot of time focusing on uh, God's word as it is preached and taught, and our small groups are centered around God's word, and um, it is a a foundation. So, And whether we're preaching through a book like we're doing through Joshua or preaching topics, we always start with the word. That's our foundation. So we're going to continue through uh, the the book of Joshua. We're coming to a fairly famous... um, account, and, and I'm going to kind of preach through chapters 6, 7, and 8. We're going to cover kind of a lot of, of text today. It's a very famous text, but as you search God's Word and you, you look at uh, what God is teaching you through that, um, this is a very problematic text, <laughs> and it raises some questions that can be really hard for us, and, and yet it's God's Word and it's His way, and it teaches us about Him and about us, and so let's pray as we begin and approach God's Word together again. So Father, we do thank you for your unchanging word. We thank you for your unchanging ways that we are to be a people gathered here in the Merrimack Valley of Massachusetts and people gathered around the world who seek to to put you first, to make you Lord of our lives and to to see your your very word as our foundation and, and as your truth to us, Lord. And so we just pray that today that you would teach us through your word, that your spirit would work on our hearts as you need to do, and that we would receive it by faith. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, the sermon is called Jericho, Achan, and I. And so I is A-I, it's a city, I. Not A-I like um, self-driving cars and (laughs) chat bots or whatever. It's I, I'll try to make that clear as we go, I the city, so uh, Jericho, a city, Achan, a man, and I, each follows one chapter of this text here. But so, start with Jericho. Jericho, uh, they were God had given them pretty clear orders. He's like, "This is how you're going to take the city. You're going to march around this thing every day, six days. On the seventh day, you're going to march around the city uh, seven times. You're going to sound the trumpets. You're going to shout. The walls are going to fall down, and you're going to take the city." And sure enough, that's what happens. But this is, and, and this is a really. Uh, a popular kind of Old Testament Sunday school story, it makes for a great uh, veggie Tale episode or whatever. Uh, but as, as we sit and reflect on this, it becomes really problematic on two levels. One more than the other. Uh, the first is that, did this actually happen? I mean, did people actually shout and the walls of a city fell down? I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. Or is this just kind of a myth, a kind of a, a way of telling a story that these ancient peoples sort of made up? You know, did this actually happen? Or was it their shouting caused a vibration that was just the right frequency that shattered the walls? Or did God give an earthquake at the time, at the exact moment when they were shouting? And, um, and what does archaeologists, you know, archaeologists can go dig this up. Can they, do they see evidence of this? And it's funny because the archaeologists don't agree with each other. Some archaeologists say this, there's no way this happened. It couldn't have happened. Jericho wasn't even inhabited at the time of Joshua. And all this is just kind of made-up stories. And there's other archaeologists who say, no, there's evidence this happened exactly the way the Bible describes it. There's big fortified walls of the city. It looked as if there had been some kind of earthquake. It looks like there had been a siege and there was burning of the city. And it was a very quick siege that no plunder was taken because the grain piles were burnt on top but not underneath. And it's just so specific. And it seems like there's some confirmation bias depending on what kind of archaeologist you are and what you're actually looking for. And I'm not sure that really, you know, archaeology is amazingly helpful to help us have confidence that what the Bible says is historically accurate or at least plausible. Uh, But in this case, I don't know. Everybody's disagreeing with each other. I, I believe in miracles, so I'm good with it. I'm good that God just miraculously made the city walls just crash down and his people went in. This is just God demonstrating his power and I think most of us in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would have to believe in miracles. Jesus' miraculous birth, his miraculous resurrection from the dead. I mean, these are, our, our faith is founded in miracles because it proves God's power, that it's God who is doing these things. Our problem with miracles is they don't happen more often. God, why not more miracles today? Why not more healings? Why not more protecting people from evil? Why not stopping people from dying? You know, what why not more miracles? And even Jesus said, you know, these, you know, miracles can become a distraction. Jesus had massive, he was performing miracles and healings, and there's these huge crowds, and he said, look, you're, you're following me because of miracles? These miracles point to something greater. And I'm not sure you're ready for that. And I'm not sure giving you more miracles is actually going to help you. That yes, miracles affirm God's power, but it's, it's not the focus. It's our focus is to be on the kingdom that they reveal, not on the miracles themselves. So I'm good with this happening just the way it's described here. The, the bigger problem that this text raises is once those walls go down, the, these people go in with swords and they kill everybody. Men, women, children, and animals. And they burn the whole city down. That is Problematic. If that were to happen today, if an army went somewhere to a city and killed everybody there and burned it down, you would call that uh, ethnic cleansing or just some kind of war crime. And again, we're, we're reading the Bible, and many people read the Bible, and they get to this stuff, and it just really can derail your faith. Is this the God that I, I worship? Is this the God that I believe loves me? Um, and we believe the Bible is God's word and it's powerful, but this can be very difficult. And atheists love this kind of stuff. Richard Dawkins wrote in The, the God Delusion, his, his uh, famous book, he described the God of the Old Testament as a, quote, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And others have said similar things, like look at the God you worship, just murdering people and displacing them out of their land. Uh, this would otherwise be called genocide, but you somehow are okay with it, person of faith. You know, what are you going to do with that? And it is a hard question. What I'd say first off for us as a church is that it's okay to ask these kind of questions. If you read these texts and it troubles you, that's okay. It should trouble you because this is intense. And we believe that it's true. And we don't want to just dismiss it. And we wrestle with these questions of faith. I think sometimes people have grown up in faith traditions where they weren't allowed to doubt. They weren't allowed to ask hard questions. And we whether it's on Sundays or in our small groups or at Alpha, you know, just places where we can ask very hard questions and and be confused about what God is doing here. Um, How would I explain this? Again, I don't have to make excuses for God. God, the first thing I'd say is, you know, God, all of life is in God's hands. God gives life and God takes away life. These people died in war. Other people die in war. Some people die in accidents. Some people get sick and die. Some people get old and die. Some people die right after they're born. It, it, this is all in God's hand. And so how God chooses to give and take life is in God's hand. It's actually a miracle of God that anybody is saved from death. And here, you know, this is God revealing himself, and this is how God chooses to do that. The problem, and actually I don't think people have a huge problem with God as the giver and taker of life. The problem here is the human agency of it, that God called a person or a group of people in his name to go and to to kill in this way and sort of take over the land. Um, But we also need to remember that the Bible describes these people, the Canaanites, they were very evil people. When God promised to Abraham way back before, God made a promise. He said, you're going to have this land, but the sin of the Amorites, or the Canaanites, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, Genesis 15, 16. So God was saying, you know, there's a sinfulness here, and it's going to get to its fullness, and it's going to need to be purified, cleansed. And and by all accounts, historically, these were very evil, violent people. Um, There was a lot of killing and violence, the brutality there was sexual deviation, including bestiality and incest, and they were sacrificing children to their gods, and it was a very evil and dark place. So these are truly evil people. And, um, and these are people who, when God's, when god's people, the, the God of Israel, when they see that, they're shaking in their boots. They can see that there's power there, but instead of putting their faith in the God of Israel, they, they just dig in. They turn from that. The only one who... Her faith in the God of Israel was Rahab. We looked at her a couple weeks ago. That God's desire was not to destroy these people, but he could have saved any of them as they would have turned and put their faith, but they stayed in their wicked ways and God's judgment was on this city. God's desire, though, was that the wicked would turn from sin rather than die. And so you got to remember that. Now, even with those kind of explanations, some people say, I just can't. I mean, I just... Um, The the conquest of these lands just doesn't seem right to me. And some people just dismiss it. Say, you know what, this probably didn't happen, or God didn't actually command the people to do this, so it's just ancient, you know, this is what, 3,500 plus years ago. It's a very different land, and they just kind of wrote it up a certain way, and this probably didn't really happen that way. I don't agree with that at all. Yes, it was a different world. And it is hard to impose our sensibilities today on ancient cultures and tribal cultures and how God was revealing himself through a certain way of life you know, many years ago. But I look at this as both historically accurate and teaches us something very important about how God works. The story of Joshua and the Israelites taking the land is really the story of all of the Bible. It's the story about God restoring a world that's broken in sin and darkness and reclaiming it for himself and purifying it. That's what God does in a sinful and broken world. God purifies it. And that's what God... Uh, that's His—that's God's work. Ephesians chapter 1 describes it like this. It says, uh, Ephesians 1.9, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. That God is reclaiming all things to himself. And this is just a little glimpse of it. This is a little piece of this. And it teaches us that God is holy and that God is perfect and he is other. And there is no room for sin in God's perfection. So sin has to be purified. So that's why you The land is purified and everything is killed and burned and and totally reclaimed. But this is is an image of what God does for us in our hearts. 1 John 1 says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Again, so God is holy, God is pure, and God is perfect. However... Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Just as this land was impure and sinful, our hearts are impure and sinful. And if we try to claim that, oh, we're not so bad, he said, no, that's a lie. That your heart needs to be purified, but you don't die for that today. Jesus died for you. And it's his blood that covers our sin, that purifies us. It was the sacrifice of Jesus. So it looks different today, but it's the same God reclaiming your heart for himself and completely purifying it. And Jesus gave himself for that. That is, that is the whole image that's going on here. It's the same story of God. Everything was, so everything in this city needed to be just completely devoted to God and done away with. And that brings us to Achan. So Achan was part of this army that went in and they, uh, the, the walls of Jericho fall. They go in to destroy it. But Achan found some stuff found some silver, a bar of gold, it's pretty cool, and a nice robe. And it was all being burned anyway, so he took some for himself. He didn't tell anybody, he hid it in his tent, he buried it under his tent, and no one knew about it, even though they were commanded to just destroy everything. He took a little bit with him. So now that the Israelites have... Taken Jericho. The next city is the city of Ai, Ai, not the city of Ai. That'll be cool someday to have a city of Ai, but the city of Ai. And it's up on the hill, so they've conquered kind of the valley city. Now, if they can get this hill city of Ai, a smaller city, they'll be in control of that whole region. So they they take a number, they're not going to need the whole army, but they take a contingent of folks and they go to conquer this city. And they are defeated by the army of Ai. And they have to retreat and run back to camp. And um, 36 Israelite, Israelite soldiers die in that battle. And Joshua is just distraught. He tears his clothes, he's on his knees. He said, Lord, why would you bring us to this place to have us be defeated by our enemies? These are our enemies, they're enemies of you. We're humiliated, God. This is humiliating you. God, why are you doing this? And and God calls to him and says, Joshua, get up. I didn't bring you here to get to destroy you. He said, There's things, there's sin here. And in verse 13, God says, there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. So these things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord and, and just taken and destroyed, he said, you didn't, you, you've stolen that away from me, and it's, it's, in your, it's with your people. God knew what had happened. And then through this process, Achan is revealed as the one who took these things for himself. He admitted to it. He said, yes, I took a robe, I took the silver, I took the gold, and he was punished. They, they removed these things from his tent. They, they, he was killed. He was punished with the death sentence. Again, harsh, costly, but remember, these 36 men had died because of this battle that they couldn't win because this sin had taken place and because he had taken these things. So what is the lesson for us in this? Well, I mean, maybe lesson number one is don't mess with God. <laughs> right? Um, you can't hide from God. We, we think we can. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sin, what do they do? They cover their bodies. They hide from God. God says, where are you? God knew where they were, but God knows the, the, the sinful human heart is inclined to want to hide in shame. And, but we can't. God knows our hearts too well. He knows everything. Jesus said nothing, nothing that is hidden won't be exposed. Nothing that's been whispered won't be shouted out. You cannot hide from God. And we have Jesus Christ. So when we have sin in our life, we can confess it. And we aren't given the death sentence because of that, but Jesus did get the death sentence on our behalf. So we receive his grace and we can be forgiven. So we don't die like Achan, but we still need to be people who are honest about where we fall short. And to be honest that when we fall short of God's standard and we all fall short, that it has ramifications for the people around us. That when there's sin in a a family, it impacts the whole family. And in a church, it impacts the whole church or in in a community. That that sin, you could try to hide it and try to cover it, but it's going to impact the people around you. Sin hurts us. It hurts our relationship to God. And it hurts our relationships with people around us. Therefore, as people of faith who are inclined to sin, we need to be people who are quick to be reconciled to God, to confess our sin, to acknowledge our sin, and not just to make excuses. You know, so you fall short. You say, but, you know, I was pushed, or but, you know, but I was having a bad day. Sure, I sinned, sinned, but you started it, you know. Yeah, I fell short, but it was someone else's fault. You know, but but this, but that. You know, my, my good friend and colleague, Pastor David Midwood, used to say famously, he said, every person has a but. Not every person's butt is the same, but everybody needs to take their butt to the cross of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I sinned, but. Like, no buts. Not just remorse. Oh, I feel so bad. You know, I can't, be- I can't believe I did that. You know, I... I'm I'm a peaceful person. I can't believe I got angry like that. You know, I, I'm a person of self-control. I can't believe it. I got drunk. I I never lie. It just sort of slipped out that one time. And we, we get so shocked by our own sin. Oh, I can't believe I did that. You have a pretty high view of yourself if you don't think you're ever gonna sin. Maybe too high of a view of yourself. True repentance is confessing that yes, I owned that, I did that. That is me, that is my sinful heart, and God. You gave me life. You, you sustained my life. You've come to this world to rescue me. You've created me to do good things, and here I am falling short of your standard, and I know that it grieves your heart, and I know that this breaks our relationship, and I'm coming to you to say, Lord, I've failed, and I need your grace to forgive me, to renew me, to restore me, to change me, and God forgives and God purifies us so that we can press on The the forgiveness is complete, it purifies us, and we can press into the victorious life that God has for us, the abundant life, the eternal life, what God wants for us. And that brings us to the city of Ai. So now that the sin has been um, cleansed from the community, Achan's sin, now we have the people of God, um, they take the city of Ai. So this time, Joshua sends a contingent of soldiers to ambush, so he sends them around the city, and then the other part of the army is coming up the hill towards Ai. The people of Ai have seen this before, they, and they were victorious, so they came down to battle and to push them back. While they're doing that, they leave the city. The ambush comes in right through the city. Now the army of Ai is surrounded. They have no chance. They're destroyed, and, they, and Israel gets the victory. And you'll notice it's a very different kind of victory. Jericho, they shouted, the walls fell down. Very miraculous. This was very military. In Joshua chapter 8, as you read your Bible, it's very specific of the movements of the army. It was very not miraculous. right? It was just normal warfare. But what do the people do? Once they have victory from normal warfare, they give God the glory. Because they know that it was God who gave them the victory When they win by a miracle, God gave them the victory when they won through these military tactics. And they build an altar. They start making sacrifices to God. They recommit their lives to God and his way. They reread the law and they remind themselves of what it means to follow God. For us, every day we have an opportunity to recommit ourselves to God. God's mercy, as we sang, new every morning. Morning by morning, God's mercies are new to us, so we turn from our sin and we recommit to His word. So here's what's going on. Joshua Aiken and I. we have a God who is reclaiming a sinful world, purifying it, reclaiming it as His own, which is the exact same things, the exact same thing that God does in our hearts. He takes our sinful heart, purifies it, and calls us His own. And yet we still need to recognize our need for forgiveness to be confessing our sin as, a, as part of our lifestyle. No excuses, no remorse, but true confession and receiving God's grace again and again. And the result is we give him the glory for all of it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your way where you take a sinful world and you take us, sinful people, and you call us your own. You call us and you purify us and call us to something better, something good, Lord. Father, I pray for those here today who might feel distant from you. Lord, if there's any sin in our lives and in our hearts that we have been hiding or pressing down, Lord, would you just reveal that to us as we, as we listen to, this, um, to the music in a moment? Lord, I just pray that if there's anything you need to bring to our hearts and minds that you would do so and that we would be quick to pray to you and to, to confess it to you, to receive your grace and your forgiveness that we might press into the good life that you've called us to. We thank you that you're that good and that loving to rescue us. To let us, to, be, to let us be agents of your kingdom on earth, Lord. We give you all the glory for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.